I'm really excited to have Jeff Snyder joining me and Ansel to talk about WTF is happening with central banks and the dollar and the Fed and prices and assets and all the crazy stuff that's kind of happening around us right now. Um, Jeff is the head of global investment research over at Alhambra Investments. He runs a fantastic channel on YouTube, so check that out, as well as a lot of great content about everything around the euro dollar, everything around the global monetary system. So this is his third time on the show, and we're excited to dive into all the craziness that's happening into the world. Ansel, Jeff, welcome to the show. I guess, Jeff, let's go to you. Uh, how are you doing, my man? Thank you guys for having me back, and uh, it's great to see you both again. Awesome. Well, uh, Jeff, like I said, you are an expert in the global monetary system, and we love to pick your brain and you know just kind of get a dose of outside information into our Bitcoin audience. Um, Ansel, you have a lot teed up for us today. Do you want to kind of get the conversation teed up? Yeah, well, I, I wanted to take the opportunity to get when Jeff is on the show to ask as much as I can, but we're probably going to whittle this down to only a couple topics. But uh, yeah, Jeff, can you uh, briefly explain to people that are new to the show here, because you've been on twice before, and I'm sure a lot of our audience watches your podcast as well, but there are new people out there. So can you briefly explain what the Eurodollar system is and how that might differ from, you know, traditionally what we think of as the said center the the fed centered system no i can't briefly explain it come on <laughs> no way <laughs> no yeah the brief overview explanation is that look the monetary system took a detour about 75 years ago uh created uh, this euro dollar system which is essentially an offshore interbank centered network of money that isn't really recognizable at least not in the traditional format uh, as money it's it's essentially money of account or ledger money where the banks operating in that system get to decide what is money, what is not money, what's you know derivatives, repo, all sorts of crazy stuff out there, which makes it essentially impossible to keep track of unless you're some kind of superhuman with, with incredible insight and uh, you, know, uh, you know insight into the, the banking system and everything that's going on in it. And because of that, there's obviously enormous implications. Uh, number one is that this euro dollar offshore money uh, monetary system has has uh, absorbed the roles of a global reserve currency system that most people have been taught and believe to this day is the U.S. dollar. It's not really true. The, especially the liquidity and adjustment functions of a reserve currency have been performed by the euro dollar ever since the 1950s. Uh, the second part of that is. If you have this, uh, this gross monetary evolution in this offshore banking center system, um, it makes your job not just difficult, but almost impossible if you're a central bank in a national jurisdiction like the Federal Reserve or even the European Central Bank or any central banks around the world. Because a traditional Walter Badgett style central bank is one that is supposed to provide currency elasticity. But if you're the Fed and you can no longer define what is and what is not money, you can't really define what is what is not currency. How do you provide elasticity? How do you solve your role as a central bank under that kind of regime? And what happened many, many years ago, we're talking decades ago, is that central banks and central bankers around the world decided, well, we don't need to. We'll kind of change what we do. We'll go into this expectation psychology business because we have no idea what the banks are doing. And so what we'll try to do is influence the behavior, the perceptions, and the sentiment of not just banks that operate in the system, but also the real, real economic participants, employers, consumers, whatever. If we influence the behavior, and if we do it right, 
then we won't need to know the dirty monetary details. We don't need to know the nitty gritty of what goes on in the monetary system. We'll leave that up to the banking system. We'll try to influence their behavior in predictable ways, and it'll all work out grand. It'll all work out splendidly. Of course, the problem in 2007, what happens when you have a real monetary problem show up that can't just be fixed with psychological manipulation? The answer is you have a global financial crisis that derailed the entire global economy, the entire global financial system, and it wasn't a one-off derailing. It was a permanent rupture in the, the way the system works. So 2008, not about subprime mortgages, instead about global dollar shortage in the real reserve currency, which is the euro dollar. And we're still living with those negative implications to this day, even though we're almost 15 years later. That's the short version. That's the short version. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Um, and diving in deeper into the euro dollar system, I mean, you said here influence and behavior. Well, one of those th ways that people they have done that is well, this isn't the Fed. This is the actual euro dollar system itself is LIBOR, I would say. And so LIBOR yeah. has some recent news out there. They're trying to switch over to SOFR. I guess it's been going on for several years. They've been so trying you, to do this. Anto, can you briefly yeah. unpack those acronyms? Well, I was going to have Jeff do it. So what is the <laughs> what, what is LIBOR and what's the news going on with SOFR? Yeah, I'm glad you said it that way because you absolutely caught the detail here. The overriding thing that we'll get to in a minute, LIBOR is the London Interbank Offer Rate that showed up in the 1960s con concurrent with this rise in the euro dollar system. So the London Interbank Offered Rate, again, all the things I just said, interbank, monetary system, offshore, it's the euro dollar rate. So LIBOR is essentially this offshore real world global reserve currency rate. And it's not just a single rate. There's a bunch of different rates. There's one, there's, you know, over, there's a one week LIBOR, there's one month LIBOR, there's 12 month LIBOR, and there's the big one, which is three month LIBOR. And that has been for many, many years, for decades, it has underpinned and supported the fixed income system globally. So pretty much everything that happens in the banking system, it has some kind of attachment somewhere to three month LIBOR in particular. So it is the London Bank Interbank Offered Rate or London Interbank Offered Rate that's, that's representative of what the banks in that monetary system are doing, the keepers of the ledger. What are, they, what are the risks they're perceiving? What are the conditions they're, they're trading into? What, are, what is going on in the monetary system? LIBOR gives us one real clear window into what that might be. Um, and as you said, the regulators around the world don't really don't, don't really seem to like LIBOR that much because they have been on a crusade to get rid of it for not just a couple of years, but over a decade now, which, I mean, you have to wonder if it's so bad, if, if there's something really wrong with it, why is it taking so long to get to this point? And that's really the more complicated story. And it gets back to what I said before, you know, if people don't realize that there is an offshore monetary system, and then that monetary system breaks down and causes all sorts of global havoc and, and extreme uh extreme damage in real economic and financial terms, the last thing you want to do is have people start connecting these dots, right? Because that's not the, that's not the story of the, the first global financial crisis that anybody's been told. Everybody told us about subprime mortgages and greedy Wall Street bankers, not a global dollar shortage in this euro dollar system. Nobody's heard about this stuff. So um, what happened in 2012 and 2011, 2012 was that there was a sort of, there was a scandal in the way in which LIBOR is, um, the way LIBOR is actually priced on a day-to-day -day basis. Some bankers were cheating, you know, a 16th of a point here or there, shaving off a little bit uh, extra here and there, which regulators used and seized upon as an opportunity to get rid of this, this thorn in their side. 
So they said this was the crime of the century. This was the worst thing that ever happened. And so we need to sweep LIBOR away and get into something else uh, entirely. But yet uh, the something else entirely has proved to be in a, itself a thorny issue because it's very clear what, the, the, what, what has been proposed over the years isn't actually a realistic or very good uh, alternative to the LIBOR system, which is one reason why it's taken so long to get to this point. And what they came up with in 2014 was this thing called SOFR, S-O-F-R, which is a secured overnight financing, right? Which already, if you know anything about LIBOR, you know anything about this, you can tell these two things are not compatible. LIBOR is, again, not just the interbank offered rate, but it's what banks are, are, are offering to lend each other in this interbank market on an unsecured basis. So basically a handshake interbank uh, short-term loan Whereas the secured overnight financing rate refers to domestic markets, but more than that refers to secured markets. So we're going from an unsecured overnight offshore rate to a secured overnight uh, uh, onshore or domestic rate. And these two things are not exactly the same at all. In fact, they're not really close enough to the same, which is why here we are in 2022 still talking about the LIBOR transition when it was first raised over a decade ago. Excellent. Yeah. And the reason why I'm interested in this is because it is, I believe it's kind of a window onto how the system will change. And I think we probably agree that the system is, has broken. And I think that we're going towards entropy, right? We're, we're going towards the Japanese model of low growth, low inflation, low interest rates uh, for as far as I can see. And to get out of this, something has to change. So I'm always keeping my eye out for what can we look to as an example of how the system will change? And to me, SOFR is kind of a little window into how the system might adapt to other things in the future. Is, is my thinking off or is this a great way to observe this? Yeah, I don't think I would use SOFR quite like that. I think it's another, what the regulators have essentially done is for very, very different reasons, they've introduced another form of uncertainty. And uncertainty is the last thing we need. What we really need to happen to have any sort of monetary expansion to avoid the Japanese scenario that, that you pointed out, Ansel, is, is you know, the one that we've been following for the last 15 years. To get out of that, we need, we need certainty. We need predictability. We need volatility to go away. And this is not the way to do it. But again, the SOFR episode to me illustrates how policymakers don't really understand this system that they're in. They essentially had a knee-jerk reaction to what LIBOR presented to the world in the first global financial crisis, which was, these are not central banks. These people don't know what they're doing. If you followed LIBOR throughout the 2007-2008 crisis, what you found was that it wasn't working. Nothing the Fed did actually had any impact because LIBOR rates stayed high throughout the entire crisis from August 9th, 2007, all the way through the end. So if anybody paid attention, fortunately for central bankers, not many people really paid close enough attention, but for anybody who did and anybody who wants to go back in history and look at what actually happened, LIBOR was a completely embarrassed them, exposed everything that was wrong with the system. And so essentially they've tried to shut it down and shoehorn this SOFR thing into it, which has just introduced more uncertainty because SOFR is completely inappropriate as a, as a LIBOR replace, replacement, which is why the banking system has resisted. So I look at SOFR more along the lines of what are policymakers doing wrong and what, what effects might that be having on not just today, but what, 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 would, the, what would that might do for uh, future considerations or future factors, including, like I said at the beginning, uncertainty. We've introduced now in the core of the global fixed income markets, 
an uncertain, we don't know how sulfur is going to actually take over from three months LIBOR that has a, you know, more than 50 year track record. We know how LIBOR responds in all sorts of, of, of conditions. We have no idea how sulfur responds. And oh, by the way, when you get into things like term sulfur and, and uh, you know, bootstrapping of, of, of various risks embedded in these rates, sulfur does not behave like LIBOR does. At least it hasn't up to this point. So like I said, this, this is an unforced error, in my opinion, that, that creates more uncertainty that's likely to depress uh, future conditions. Because think about it. You're a bank operating in the euro dollar market that hasn't been hasn't worked very well at all, and now you have to worry about whether or not sulfur is going to accurately price risks if something starts to go wrong in the future. That's just, I mean, that's pro cyclical. That's not anti cyclical. So, it's another one of those things, like Dodd Frank or anything else, that just adds more to what's already been depressing the system. Man, don't you wish you, we had a uh, an alternative that was sound and transparent? <laughs> but what yeah, could I, that possibly be? <laughs> well, I, I have a I have a follow no, up for think, that. I, no, Chris, I think that's exactly why. You know, I love I love the idea behind crypto. I love the technology. I love the potential for exactly these reasons because you're right. The problem with the system from the very beginning. We're going back to the 1950s is that it's been a ledger system kept by a very narrow group of people, these interbanks that are the banks that operate in this interbank market across the world. And they don't let anybody know what's going on. It's completely opaque. First of all, nobody knows it's there, but even those of us who have studied it for a very long time, we don't really know what goes on in the system. So it's completely, it's completely opaque. We can't see into it. It's, it's just a total complete mess, which makes it more difficult to pin down what's going wrong as well as what can we get to start going right. So how are banks uh, responding to this uncertainty? Uh, I've heard you speak recently on your podcast a little bit about this, um, that they are forming some other reference rates that they're using, some private reference rates. Um, you know, what, what, how have they responded to this? Well, specifically LIBOR. What happened was at the end of last year, regulators in the United States in particular said, look, if you're a bank and you originate new loans with LIBOR, you're not forbidden from doing that. But if you do, we're going to come down hard on you. We're going to we're going to take the regulatory regulatory scrutiny up to eleven. We're going to make life very hard for you if you originate any loans with LIBOR. So at the end of last year, uh, bankers were busy, lawyers were busy uh, trying to get as many LIBOR loans originated as they possibly could before the end of the year deadline. Now that we're on the other side of it, the market has sort of transitioned into a very uh, a bunch of different things because as much as the regulators have tried to force SOFR down their throat. Again, it's not an appropriate rate. It doesn't give us the same information that three months LIBOR does in particular. So banks have resisted. And so it's no longer just, hey, SOFR is going to replace LIBOR. It's a whole bunch of different things that are right now actually being used. One of them is called Bisbee. It's a rate that Bloomberg has come up with, with that does, that does uh, have some of the features that three months LIBOR does. In fact, I think it's intended to. I don't necessarily believe LIBOR is going to go away. As of right now, um, so the, some of the LIBOR tenors, especially three-month LIBOR, 12-month LIBOR, those six-month LIBOR, the big ones, they're still going to be priced by the Intercontinental, Intercontinental Exchange going into June of next year. So there's a lot of uncertainty about LIBOR so for transition as well as, hey, maybe LIBOR sticks around a lot longer than people think. And uh, it's not really, hey, this is an easy, clean transition from one to the next. It's sort of just nothing has really emerged is a good enough alternative to LIBOR that it's really a period of experimentation. Excellent. Um, Christian, you want to go on to the next question? Yeah. So, Jeff, 
you know, we, we've talked a lot, you know, you first Ansel and I on this show, but every single time you've joined about the fed and other central banks don't really have the dials and tools that they say they have, or they think they have. Um, and really a lot of it is about setting up expectations. We saw that really play out um, with Jerome Powell and the Fed uh, really kind of taking a pivot. Um, I'm curious, you know, what's your take on, you know, the last, let's just call it six weeks and how that has played out um, with the expectation management from, uh, from the Fed? Yeah, since they prioritize expectations, their first position early last year with CPI starting to accelerate was that it was transitory inflation, which I agree with. I think that's exactly what's happened. With the classic supply shock, prices went through the roof because we, we tried to squeeze a two years worth of goods through one year worth of supply conditions. But then, you know, the CPIs didn't, you know, what does transitory actually mean? Transitory actually means different things to different people. And I think it's understandable why people, uh, members of the public and lay people would say, you know, is a year transitory? It doesn't seem like it. So what happened was as CPIs continued to be high throughout last year, the Federal Reserve started to worry that these high rates of CPI were going to start to filter into especially consumer expectations, but also business expectations too. That uh, if we start to expect and normalize the high CPI rates, then we start to expect inflation. Therefore, we'll start to act in an inflationary manner. It's the self-fulfilling prophecy that the Fed has actually been after ever since the first QE going back to 2008. So the idea was, okay, yes, it's transitory, but it's sticking around. Maybe, maybe uh, the consumers acclimatize to high rates of CPI, and that begins to start to affect their behavior. And since we're all about behavior, not money, then we have to adjust our policy. And that's really the point here, because inflation, real inflation is a monetary phenomenon. So it really should be very simple. If you're a central bank, just look, is there too much money or is there not too much money? It really should be that simple. Have we created too much money or have we not? But that's not what the Fed does. The Fed goes through this expectations game. And what they're saying is that at first we thought this was transitory, but now we're worried it's going to influence expectations negatively. So we need to adjust our policy. So as far as the Fed goes, they have absolutely shifted into a hawkish direction because of, they're concerned about um, consumers and businesses becoming normalized to high rates of inflation when that's not how inflation works. So I guess let's, let's tease this out a little bit more. I mean, was this a, a policy error? Um, I guess, like, can you, can you talk a little bit about why they're behaving this way right now beyond um, the fact that uh, they're just reacting to uh, expectations? Well, if you don't do actual money, right? I mean, again, inflation should be simple. Is there too much money or is there not too much money? And if you can't do that, then you have to go through a, some other backwards, you know, reverse engineering process to try to figure out the future. Because, you know, inflation is essentially a future property. So if we're looking at what, the, what we expect consumer prices to do in 2022, for example, and you don't have a way to, you don't have a window into the monetary system, that's what you essentially have to piece together a bunch of psychological tools and quantitative econometrics to try to figure out is this going to be inflationary or not? We can't really look at the monetary aspect because we don't. So what they're essentially doing is trying to read the tea leaves and the astrology and look at all of their astrological charts and decide whether or not these expectations are going to be something meaningful. And they've, they've come to the conclusion that the dangers in their theory, in their worldview, the dangers are too high. Therefore, they need to start shutting down QE, tapering it off and getting into the rate hike regime. 
essentially replaying what we've done, what we did just three years ago. And where it starts to become a little bit sticky or a little bit thorny again is that nobody's buying it. I mean, outside the financial media, outside the mainstream, uh, mainstream commentary, you look at the actual money markets, the, this interbank euro dollar system, nobody's buying the inflation. Literally, nobody's buying the inflation. The yield curve is flattened. The euro dollar futures curve is inverted, which is the market rejecting the whole hypothesis behind taper. And the market's saying, we've looked at the monetary system. Guess what? There isn't too much money. There's, in fact, we're, on, we're in danger of, again, going into a, a situation where we have too little money. So it's not so much a policy error as it is the, the, uh, the, uh, the justification rationale behind taper and rate hikes being rejected outright by the marketplace, the money system itself, because it was a temporary supply shock. And those things, those, the, the temporary factors that, that created consumer price, I mean, really substantial consumer price acceleration last year, we're already seeing the downside of those hit across the world. So it may be just a matter of time before the Fed is exposed as this expectations rather than monetary policy. Yeah, you and Emil have talked about this on your show. Um, I think it, Emil brought it up was um, that perhaps this was to give them room. You know, that they had to um, come off of QE at full blast, right? Imagine if they were doing 120 a month with rates at zero and uh, then all of a sudden they had a downturn in the economy. Where, where are they going to go from there? So um, I think Emil brought it up that maybe this was to give themselves room to now be dovish again. So now they can say, oh, well, we're going to hold off on raising rates. That would be a huge, like if they came up Now tomorrow, you're thinking like a central banker. <laughs> yeah. <if> they, <laughs> that's if they, how they think. It really is. It's, it's odd. It's weird. But that's exactly what they're, they're thinking if, you know, hey, if there is some downside risk to the economy, we're still on full blast QE. How can we, uh, you know, it's not whether they're adding money to the system. It's whether they're shocking the system in one way or another. So if you think that inflation is going to be a problem and you're doing this non-money monetary policy, you have to have a hawkish shock, which is I'm going to taper. I'm going to go rate hikes. and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it fast and quick. But if things go the other way and you're still doing QE, you have no room for a shock. And the fact this was what this was Ben Bernanke's biggest complaint about the 2007 2008 crisis was once they got down to the zero lower bound, he had no more ammunition. And what you really should say, well, wait a minute, aren't you, can't you just print money? Well, no. <laughs> Monetary policy is all about can I get people to believe I'm being helpful, which means I need to send a helpful signal, which is cutting rates. And if you're already at zero, or Jay Powell, you're already doing 120 billion a month in QE. You can't send a powerful and accommodative signal because you're already accommodative and you're on your own terms. So yeah, they're in a rush to get done with QE and get into rate hikes so that if there is any downside risk, which probably they don't think will materialize until 2020, the end of, end of this year, maybe into next year, they got to give themselves some room to at least, you got to have rate hikes you got to push rates up so that you can cut them again, right? You got to you got to end QE so that you can reintroduce QE at some future point. And it, that's that in a nutshell is monetary policy. It has no money in it. It's all about uh, manipulating psychological emotion. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you next. Is where do you think uh, they're going this year? But um, I don't know. I think that tomorrow because they have a FOMC meeting right now correct today and tomorrow and they're going to be talking tomorrow or the press conferences tomorrow so um perhaps they have a, a dovish surprise and say they're going to push out <laughs> uh push out the rate hikes until the end of the year i think uh that could uh, boost markets i mean 
it, it wouldn't even be technically dovish. They're still talking about rate hikes, but they're being able to push it out. So it looks dovish. I don't know. What, what do you think for the rest of the year? Yeah, there is this, this uh, sort of impulse to do a short-term fine tuning, which to me is ridiculous. I mean, you're already off into the, into the, you know, into nether netherland anyway. And so now you want to fine tune short run um, fluctuations, which isn't, it's impossible. But yeah, I think that when we stop and look at it from the big picture perspective of how last year actually played out versus how it's, it's said to have played out when you have rising uncertainty, rising deflationary pressure, especially through the last part of the year, you can understand why, you know, first they turned hawkish and now there's maybe they're a little bit uncertain. And now they're worried that if, if we actually do something different, how is that going to affect emotions in the real economy and the real financial markets, all sorts of things that they're looking at, which have nothing to do with the monetary system itself. It's all about manipulating emotions. So the Fed could do anything tomorrow. The question is whether or not it actually matters. And that's where we get into the market reaction. Now I'm not talking about stocks. I'm talking about the actual market, which is not just US treasuries, but all sorts of fixed income instruments, including Euro dollar futures, this offshore monetary system, which tells us that you know, maybe it doesn't really matter what the Fed does tomorrow because we've been rejecting this premise for nine months already. We see uh, growth and inflation expectations be marked down, not up. And it may be, you know, the Fed's just going to hike, not hike, whatever. It's already baked into the cake at this point, which is, again, repeating the 2018 scenario when the Fed grew especially hawkish in 2018. The market, it rejected that, the, the entire thesis and rejected that whole scenario. And oh, by the way, the market was absolutely correct because 2019 wasn't filled with inflation and rate hikes. It was filled with deflation and rate cuts. So we're kind of getting that same sort of same sort of weird, queer feeling where something's not right here. All right. And I want to take advantage of having you on the show. So I, I want to cover a lot of ground here on the, the you talk a lot about the, the yield curve. And uh, I think your account is one of the you know criminally unfollowed Twitter accounts because you do put out all your charts and you talk about uh, the yield curve quite a bit. And uh, that's one of the, uh, I guess, parts of the system that can give us so much information that people don't understand. Um, now, on a recent episode, you talked about that the yield curve is closer to Japan than to takeoff. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, well, the yield curve, you're right, Ansel, because, I mean, most people, what they know of the yield curve is if it inverts, it's some kind of recession signal. Other, outside of the, an inversion, we pay no attention to it. And not only that, people have the wrong perception of interest rates entirely. We, I think we talked about this before in your show, the uh, interest rate fallacy. We're, we're, we're taught and we're led to believe that low interest rates are a good thing. They're a sign of stimulus. And so if, if interest rates are low, we should be positive. When history shows that low interest rates are always, always associated with tight money deflationary conditions, including Japan, but also the United States in the Great Depression, which nobody would associate with an inflationary period. So if we have a yield curve that's flat, flat by itself doesn't necessarily tell you anything. It doesn't mean anything bad because in a normal period, such as the 1990s in the United States, we would expect the treasury curve to be flat. It's not supposed to be steep. It's not supposed to be inverted. It's supposed to be relatively somewhat upward sloping, but not all that much. But if it's upward sloping and flat at a rate close to zero, at a nominal level close to zero, that tells you something's very wrong. So what we would expect to see if things are going from very wrong, which means low nominal levels, to something better than very wrong or even normal, we would expect the yield curve to first steepen way out, nominal rates, especially to longer end, rise much more rapidly than those 
at the short end. And that would tell us, okay, maybe there's a regime change. Maybe we're getting away from this Japan deflationary scenario into something better. And that started to be the case early last year, late 2020 and early 2021, particularly January and February of 2021, when the yield curve did steepen out. And so the yield curve told us at that time, essentially, because it was low still and not really transitioning all that much, but it was transitioning that the market was becoming a little bit more optimistic, if only relative to 2020, which is not a very high standard for comparison. But it never really progressed much more than that. The yield curve always stayed low and flat, even though it had steepened out. Now, ever since March of last year, it has remained essentially that way, but it has flattened even more because now we have the Fed coming in with its, with its rate hikes expected for this year, which has had the effect of boosting short-term interest rates without boosting long-term interest rates. Now we have a flattening yield curve at an incredibly low level that never really got outside the, the Japanese range, for lack of a better term, which means that the yield curve is telling us not inflation, more deflationary risks. So you're doing yourself a very big disservice by ignoring the yield curve at all times, in all sorts of conditions, because as you said, there is a wealth of information that tells us about not just the real economy, but the actual monetary system itself. This is, you know, who's trading treasuries, who's trading German bonds, who's doing the trading in euro dollar futures. It's those banks that keep the ledger in the monetary system. So they're giving us a great amount of information and how these curves move and shift through time to, for us to tell you know, what's really happening here. We don't have to depend upon the FOMC or the financial media or Jay Powell because they always get it wrong. We don't need to rely on them. We can just look at the curves and be re relatively assured that we have a good, a good idea of what's happening, what's really happening. I mean, Jeff, if you could, if you could describe in the most like succinctly and dumbed down way on like what you think is really happening, uh, I feel like that could be really helpful just because right now a lot of people think Weimar Germany inflation is really happening. And, you know, I think the show we've challenged that a lot, um, but you have been uh, a huge challenger of that thinking since way before coronavirus. I remember listening to you doing a Euro dollar, um, just like smash course. Uh, and, and, you know, that was in 2019, 2018. So you've been talking about this since before the pandemic was to blame. Yeah, and it starts with, you know, it's understandable why people have this impression, right? Because everywhere you see Fed, 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 bank reserves going through the roof, we got trillions, they call it money printing, they call it pouring trillions of dollars into the real economy, but nobody stops and thinks from the very start, what are they actually doing? What is the Fed actually doing? They're creating bank reserves, which, okay, bank reserves sounds like money, but is it actually money? When you actually stop and think about it and analyze what bank reserves are, you realize they don't really have a place in the actual effective global monetary system. It's sort of just, as we talked about before, a way or method for central banks to signal they're doing something. Just don't think about what they're doing. Just accept the Fed is printing money, even though the Fed, if you held a gun to Jay Powell's head, head, he would tell you, no, we don't actually print money. We just create bank reserves. So that's where it starts. I mean, you can see the Fed's balance sheet rising. You can see the level of bank reserves going through the roof. And you think, Weimar Germany. It has to be, right? What else could it possibly be? But what I say and what I tell people is, look, you have to look at the overall monetary picture globally. Bank reserves don't really have a place in it, but even something like M2. M2 has gone through the roof. You have to understand that M2, 
was obsolete decades ago. It doesn't give you a comprehensive view of the, of the monetary system either. I'll give you a perfect example. M2 skyrocketed during September and October 2008. The worst monetary panic in four generations and M2 was going through the roof. And the reason it was, was because we had this massive contraction in the money you didn't see out in the shadow system that forced a lot of banks to kind of go traditional. So they, they, they created checking deposit accounts to offset what was very real monetary destruction and things like repo and derivatives and all sorts of things out, outside. So it's not what you can see, it's what you can't see. And what you can't see is often and actually always is far more important. So in terms of money, in terms of inflation, in terms of Weimar Germany, it doesn't matter what the Fed's doing, it's what the actual monetary system is doing. So how do we know what's going on in the monetary system? As we just went through, yield curves, money curves, things like that. And all the money curves and yield curves have been telling us consistently throughout the last couple of years, no money printing, more deflationary than inflationary potential. And over the last couple of weeks, going back to October really, so the last couple of months, the market has become even more resolute about deflationary potential rising into this year, not inflationary potential, which is kind of weird because everybody says inflation, 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 yet we have these massive markets deep sophisticated markets saying the exact opposite, which is, by the way, I mean, that's the vast majority of, that's the consensus opinion is deflation, not inflation. So, so why are prices going up in terms of what consumers are feeling? Simple supply and demand dynamics, right? We had Uncle Sam come in at, in the early part of last year with tremendous doses of helicopter funds that created a one-time impact, which is basically what everybody expected. We had a supply, supply was sticky, supply was inelastic. And you have this tremendous uh, uh, onrush of demand, which simple supply and demand curves, small e economics. If demand shifts to the right and, there's, and supply is inelastic, prices have to adjust. And that makes sense. I mean, everybody started shopping on Amazon all at once, which the demand for that could not be met at any point. And then you have all of these logistical problems that have just created more frictions on the supply side, which contributes even further to consumer price acceleration. But that's not inflation. That's a supply shock. And we have seen these historically throughout, you know, not just the United States, but also all, all around the world. It's simple supply and demand economics. It's not money. It's something very different. And so if we don't have the money for actual inflation, then even though it's a tremendous supply shock, and even though it has, it has its far-reaching and widespread impacts, we don't expect it to last because it can't. It's not a monetary phenomenon. It's something else entirely. The problem is when you say transitory, people expect that to be a couple of days. Okay, it's been a month. Why, is it, why isn't it changing? In economic times, especially macroeconomic terms, you know, what are we, nine months into it? It's still, temp I mean, that's not, that's nothing. That's still the short run. Now, I know, I mean, I have to say, it is incredibly painful. This is very hard for people to absorb. We're not saying that, I'm not saying that this is not a, it's not a problem. I'm just saying it's not a monetary problem. No, I mean, I, I think that you explained that extremely, extremely clearly, and I appreciate you kind of simplifying it out there for uh, those who uh, aren't as astute in kind of understanding, you know, what yield cur curves are doing or M2 or anything like that. Um, I want to, you know, I, I think a, a really, some areas that we really agree is, you know, what's happening right now is an absolute mess, right? And I think Ansel and I, we believe that we found a solution in, in Bitcoin. Um, and I, I think that you are not quite convinced. So I'm kind of curious, you know, this is your third time on the show. We've all witnessed, uh, you know, 
a lot of our theses kind of playing out, a lot of surprises as well. But has your position on Bitcoin specifically changed? And I guess what's kind of your your take on where the crypto market is uh, playing or what its role is in, in you know, again, uh, being a part of the global monetary system in the future? Well, let me t let's start with crypto sort of in general, because I think uh, there's there's to me, there's a couple different things going on. And I think that's also leading to a lot of confusion and a lot of maybe malinvestment to use an Austrian term, too, because, again, most people have the perception, as you just laid out, Christian, that money printer go burr. We need to protect ourselves from inflation. The Fed has destroyed the dollar and Uncle Sam has contributed to it. Therefore, I think most people. Uh, I don't want to use, you know, I don't want to use the term unsophisticated, but I think most of the public who have been piling into crypto have been doing so thinking that they're going to use Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever as a store of value protection against the dollar going to zero. And I think that's 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 the big mistake that they're making is that they're looking at crypto as uh, as sort of a store of value mechanism or sort of just even a portfolio asset. I was on a podcast not too long ago and somebody asked me, do you, do you see crypto assets being a part of people's portfolios? I think, and I said to him, that's the wrong way to think about this. If crypto is actually going to be money, it's not part of your portfolio. It's what you take to the grocery store with you to buy groceries. It's actual money. So to me, I think most people are, are, are looking at crypto as store of value when I think its real potential is more along the lines of um, medium of exchange, unit of account, the real monetary nitty gritty. So where the euro dollar system today is all about medium exchange and unit of account, and as we have said, that's been malfunctioning for 15 years, it has opened the door for competing currencies, not as a store of value, but as a true medium of exchange. But I don't think that's why most people are buying cryptocurrencies, certainly right now in the most, in the most recent craze. I think they're buying it because they've been told money printer go burr, got to protect yourself from the dollar, dollar's collapse. And I think what we're seeing over the last, ever since, again, October, with crypto weakness, Bitcoin falling in price, going you know, below $40,000, that's the downside where we're starting to realize maybe we don't need Bitcoin because the dollar isn't going to crash, inflation isn't going to be a permanent phenomenon. And so we're left with this, again, perilous situation where most people have gotten their taste of crypto from store of value when they should be looking ahead as its potential medium of exchange. And that's, to me, where... The real value lies is that it's not about today. It's about down the road when some of these, uh, maybe Bitcoin, maybe one of the others, you know, who knows, actually performs the role of medium of exchange and unit of account in some substantial manner that it becomes a realistic alternative to the system that we have. That's the dream. That's the hope. But that's, I think it's still a long way down the road because you, to replicate what the euro dollar system has been able to do over the last 70 years. That, that's a that's a tall order, and it's not something you can just do overnight, obviously. And I don't think that anybody in digital currencies or you know, just decentralized finance in particular are looking to do it overnight. I just think that there was a rush into cryptos and digitals for the wrong reasons when the real potential is not store of value, it's medium of exchange. Yeah, I think the inflation narrative is actually pretty dangerous because what happens when the inevitable credit crunch happens and we have uh, deflation and we can't get rid of this deflationary pressure. Uh, gold bugs have been facing this for two, three, four decades where they say the sky is going to fall and we're going to have hyperinflation and it never comes. So then what happened, Bitcoin came up as like an alternative to that. Uh, and people 
are just moving that same narrative right onto Bitcoin and not learning any lessons. So I think that is uh, very dangerous. I, I one reason why I liked this SOFR conversation that we had earlier was because it's it's somewhat watching the system change, and it has taken so many years, decade or more to watch this simple little, uh, well, it's not simple, it's a very important thing, but uh, to watch this one thing change in the Eurodollar system and how long that's taken. So yeah, uh, I think Bitcoin is gonna take a very long time, um, but I think the argument is that uh, for being in your portfolio is that you know it's, it's a process. So a good has to become monetized and has to become liquid. And how do you do that? Well, it has to be owned by more people. So uh, that's that's kind of the argument there. Any uh, pushback on that? No, I agree. I think that's exactly right. It's not just owned and in, in, uh, it's not possessed. It's got to be used. It's got to be used in actual transactions. It's got to be used in financial transactions. It's got to be used more in real economy transactions. It's got to be a regular part. Like I said, it's not part of your portfolio. It's part of your life. That's where money actually is. It's not like, oh, do I need to invest in Bitcoin? It's, do I have enough Bitcoin to buy groceries today? That's really the conversation that I think when we get to that part, that's where we know that cryptocurrencies are becoming actual currencies, useful currencies when they become medium exchange. I think that's the opportunity. That's the, that, that's the door that's been opened by the euro dollar's dysfunction is this medium of exchange, elasticity, uh, the elasticity opportunity. And that's to me, that's, that's the thing I worry about with Bitcoin. Is it elastic enough to, uh, to, to, to really match in a very clever, insightful way, in a very elegant way, the demand for money with the supply of money? Because that's really what you want from any monetary system is to be able to efficiently and effectively match supply and demand for money without getting too excessive in either direction. That's really what elasticity means. We don't want to have too much. Then you go into inflation, you're potentially worse. You don't want to have too little because too little historically has shown has been, historically speaking, has shown to be the worst of the worst case when you have deflationary money. That's bad too. You want to hit that sweet spot, which is some form of elasticity, widespread use in actual transactions, not just a part of people's portfolio, not just speculating on whatever meme coins is hot today, but use it. Use the thing in your daily life. And as you said, Ansel, I think we're a long way from that right now, but that is that is the potential. And I think uh, when you look at digital currencies on the whole, they are moving in the right direction, if albeit slowly. The problem is this mistiming. And what you said at the, at the, uh, earlier, that there is the danger there, that people that maybe they get burned with Bitcoin this time around because they've been thinking about it as a store of value. They say, screw it. I hate cryptocurrencies. They're dangerous. And, and I got burned by it. Yeah, That's you know really what's cool. hilarious about that is that so many Bitcoiners back in 2013 through 2016 got absolutely burned based on the medium of exchange narrative. And really, it was the ones who were pushing on the store of value narrative who, uh, who had the right narrative up until this point, which is kind of funny that you're, you're, you're really pushing back on a very strong narrative within Bitcoin, which is this idea of like store of value, then... Uh, medium of exchange, then you have account. I want to hit you with uh, a theory that we've been pushing on FedWatch, which is this idea of first it's hyper dollarization followed by hyper Bitcoinization. Uh, and, and, you know, really we, we kind of see one, the dollar destroying all other fiats, which we're kind of seeing already. And, you know, we already have this euro dollar system and we're seeing the dollar evolve with Tether and other stable coins 
Um, and you know, we see nervous, uh, we see Europe getting nervous about stable coins and, and, you know, how they're starting to uh, compete against the Euro directly. Um, what's your kind of take on uh, this idea of hyper dollarization and when it's just a dollar and maybe, you know, a much bigger Bitcoin, uh, does that kind of change the equation on, on how the, on the, how the world works? Because I would say that again, our theory is that Bitcoin is this separate economy that is kind of being built adjacent to the existing economy and at some point it gets big enough where it can actually support what you're talking about but right now it's still you know in its rudimentary stages yeah and i think that's the point right you want to you want to create essentially a parallel structure that at some point can stand on its own two legs and out and actually compete uh not just compete but compete very well and so maybe not be maybe not maybe not strictly bitcoin but other forms of digital currencies can accomplish the same thing i think that's really what they're attempting to do right is to create parallel spaces that offer much better uh, terms and much better opportunities, much more effective and elegant solutions to the problems that we face today that you can see in real time, they're working. Uh, it's not like, it's not just, you know, we're not writing a bunch of white papers here. It's actually formed its own ecosystem. It's self-contained ecosystem. It doesn't need any input from the outside. That's really, that's, that's, I think, the point where we're going toward. And I think that's the point everybody's working toward. toward. The question is, is it actually feasible in its current arrangement? And that's where I kind of get into uh, some of my doubts about the system. I don't, I don't know if Bitcoin can achieve that, that form of self-contained, um, you want to call it hyper-dollarization or, or hyper-Bitcoin hyper -Bitcoin or whatever you want to say. I think that, that that's what we're working toward. That's, that's the right way to do it. But it just uh, there's a lot of challenges there that I don't think many people think about and appreciate in, in all of the, you know, as the point Ansel was just making, the reason why the euro dollar system has lasted for 15 years is because there is no realistic alternative to it. And I think there's a lack of appreciation for what reserve currencies actually do. And more than that, how they do that. What does it really take to be a reserve currency? How do we get this currency available and useful in every part of the world so that it can mediate and, and intermediate and translate very different terms? Theoretically speaking, yes, cryptocurrencies are maybe the perfect solution to do that. But you know, as as they say, there's 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 a a, a lot of uh, there's a lot of devils in the details. A lot of details to be deviled. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you this, as long as you keep saying cryptocurrencies and not Bitcoin specifically, I don't think we're talking about the same alternative system, but I want to pass it back to Ansel. Uh, I know you want to, to wrap it up, but Jeff, in general, we, we greatly appreciate your opinion and, um, you know, you're probably the, the guest that's been on this show the most. So um, we, uh, we think that you bring a lot of alpha to the audience. And uh, I know the chat on YouTube was uh, very pleased with the education that you gave everyone. My pleasure. Like I said, hey, I love Bitcoin. I love the idea. I don't want to. I don't want to come across as some as like I'm trying to bash Bitcoin because I'm not in any way. In fact, I would love to be proven wrong. I would love for Bitcoin to overcome every single one of my doubts. I would love for the for the future where we live on a Bitcoin standard. I think that would be tremendous. I just, I just, you know, it's 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 a little bit of a. a there's a little bit of a. Well, there's quite a lot of questions. A lot of quite quite a lot of hurdles to overcome between here and there. Yeah, I think it's good to question our assumptions. So I've been doing a lot of that when I remember being introduced to your stuff uh, back on Macro Voices probably four or five years ago. And I'm like cursing at my headphones like, this is wrong. This is wrong. I can't believe he's saying this. And, and now I'm like not completely converted, but I think the Eurodollar system has it much uh, 
more right than the gold bugs ever had it. So um, yeah, thank you for coming on the show. We'll, we'll have to have you on again, maybe six months time and, and you can give us an update on the yield curves and all that. So um, yeah, appreciate it. Jeff, where can people learn more about you? Yeah, like you said, I think you mentioned before, I do a podcast with Emil Kalinowski. It's called Your Dollar University. You can find it on YouTube or any of the other, you know, Apple iTunes or any other podcast outlets. I produce a bunch of material. It's, it's, it's published uh, in written form at uh, Real Clear Markets. I do a weekly, co a weekly column there, as well as uh, my company's website, alhambrapartners.com. All right. Awesome. Jeff, really, really appreciate you coming on again. And uh, yeah, this podcast is coming out tomorrow. All these videos will be live on YouTube. So feel free to share them with your audience. And again, really, uh, really appreciate the insights. Uh, and with that, make sure to follow me and Ansel on Twitter, myself at CK underscore Snarks, Ansel at Ansel Lindner. And uh, yeah, check out Bitcoin Magazine. We're putting out the best information in the macro and uh, Bitcoin space. Peace. <laughs>